Before we start, we want to say a quick thank you to Wharton Fintech's Platinum Sponsor, the Stevens Center for Innovation in Finance. The Stevens Center is a premier research, education, and thought leadership institution in the world for financial technology. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is David Green, Chief Product Officer at Ernest, where he oversees product management, product design, user research, data, and analytics. Ernest is a company tackling the 1.6 trillion student debt balance in the U.S. by helping graduates take control of their financial wellness and empower them with the capital they need to live better lives. Prior to his current role, David founded Popular Finance, which sought to eliminate the need for large security deposits in residential rentals. He is also an MBA graduate from our very own Wharton School. Now join me in my conversation with David Green. Great, David. Well, thank you for joining us on the Wharton Fintech podcast. We are glad to have an alum on the show. Uh, welcome back home. Can we start by yeah. hearing a little bit about your background? Yeah. Well, first of all, just thanks for having me. Super excited to be talking to you today. Just touching on my background a little bit, as I look back over my career, the theme is that I have yet to take a job where I knew what I was doing when I got in there. So, uh, you know, started out at doing IT consulting for Accenture with some government agencies right out of undergrad. You know, obviously, my first job out of undergrad, nobody knows what they're doing. Did that for a few years and went to get my MBA uh, at that point at Morton. After business school, I bounced around to a few different things. I ran a family business for a while right after school in Washington, D.C. That was in home furnishings, which obviously I knew nothing about. Then I moved up to New York to work for a portfolio company for a private equity firm, which was American Mortgage Consultants, which did due diligence on mortgages for third-party transactions. And did that for about three and a half years. And then, you know, kind of like many people decided that New York wasn't the place to start a family. A lot of my classmates from Morton actually had decided to move out to the Bay Area after school. And so, you know, one day I just quit my job and crashed back on a friend from Morton's couch for three months here in the Bay. And at that point, was talking to a lot of, you know, alternative lending, I would say, was very hot at the time. It was kind of the heyday of Lending Club, Prosper, Ernest, Affirm, LendUp, all of these companies were just kind of getting started. And I, I ended up taking a job with Ernest when it was about 20 people and have did a few different roles there, ran the credit operations team. I was the GM of the refi product. And then I left to try to start do my own startup, doing loans for security deposits for people moving into apartment rentals or housing rentals. And you know, obviously, that was not the unicorn that I assumed it would be. And then while I was gone, Ernest actually sold to Navient in a transaction and saw the opportunity to come back and help fill a little bit of a leadership void as Navient moved on from the founding team and really help how Ernest would grow given that its biggest limiter to growth, which was lending capital, was now effectively removed with the Navient transaction. Great. There are a lot of topics that I want to explore in our conversation. But before we start talking about Ernest, I don't see a very common thread in your post-MBA roles, right? I mean, these are 
different roles in different industries. What is it that drove you to each position and how did you find these jobs? I don't think you don't see a common thread because I'm not sure there is one. I think, again, it goes back to just seeing an opportunity, taking it and trying to make the best of it versus like, I'm not the person with the five to 10 year out master plan that I'm executing on. I think as I, (laughs) when I was at Warden, I was interviewing for consulting roles and I don't know how many interviews I had, like 50. I never, never got an offer to do consulting. So a little bit, I was scrambling at the end of school to figure out what to do. And I think, you know, my first few roles out of school were really just figuring out, you know, what I like, what I'm good at, you know, where my strengths lie. And I think it really clicked when I got, you know, it was just very clear to me the difference between my time pre-earnest and my time at earnest, which was the early stage startup or the startup environment and the tech environment is just happened to be a very good fit for me. And I really, you know, kind of thrived once I got into that space. And what was it about earnest that you know, drew you into the company in the first place? And also, as you just mentioned, you've really enjoyed your time at the company, right? Uh, what's some of that secret sauce that's, uh, that's going on at earnest? Yeah, I think, you know, I would love to say that I like made some really excellent calculated decisions about earnest and I like, you know, evaluated the industry and everything. But like, I think before you get into kind of the startup world and learn about VCs and learn about, you know, tech in general, like you just don't know what you don't know. And so I didn't know how to think about equity and I didn't know about funding rounds or the landscape of like which VCs are considered like great. Didn't know, like, didn't have a very well thought out idea of how even a lending company made money. So I think at the time it was more, I believed in the you know, kind of the mission of the company. I believed in the product of the company that the company had, which was uh, at the time a personal loan product that was the mission was to democratize access to financial services. And like, honestly, I just really enjoyed the people that I interviewed with more so than anywhere else. I think that was kind of the the closer, which was just like, hey, if I'm going to be working really hard and having people you enjoy working with is super important. You have a pretty interesting point of view of the company because as you just mentioned, you joined when it was only a team of 20. Tell us a little bit about the company. Tell us a little bit about the evolution of the company throughout your time there and also about the business model. Yeah, so I'll just start it today. We're a fintech lender. We have two primary offerings, student loan refinancing and private student loans. We have refinanced over $10 billion of student loans for around 125,000 people. When I started at Earnest, it was, you know, it was originally about this idea of democratization of financial services, and they had a personal loan. And the idea was basically through better underwriting, you could identify people that were financially responsible and on an upward trajectory and give them better rates. And I think, you know, that is true to an extent, but over time, I think it has proven to be more difficult than we thought originally, and also just not as big of an opportunity. And there's a a lot of reasons for that. You know, you can say your, your underwriting book is better, but there's like rating agencies that then take your loans and rate them based on every other loan that has been created in the history. So the fact that you're doing things differently, like you need to prove out over many, many, many years that that is real before you get any credit for that. So that's difficult. 
FICO turns out to be like pretty good for the majority of people as a you know indicator of, of whether somebody's going to pay. And like, yes, there are definitely places where it is wrong, and, and we have identified a lot of those. But you know, on the whole, I don't know how big that section is, that room for improvement. And then like regulation, like lending space is highly regulated. Regulators like are not really pumped about you using the number of like LinkedIn connections somebody has to underwrite somebody's loans. So I think that all of those things came into play. We eventually, the month I, I joined Ernest, we launched our refi product and you could just tell that that was the product, right? Like my days at work went from like eight to 7 PM to eight to eight to like 9 PM, 10 PM. And like, eventually I was working like 8 AM to 2 AM just to like get through all the, the loans coming in the day. And so I think, you know, we've kind of leaned in on the refi side and on the education finance side. That's very interesting. And as the company has scaled, how have you managed to, you know, maintain the same level of servicing, the same level of energy within the company, right? Because now it's not a 20 person team anymore. Yeah, I think when I talked to candidates and they asked how the company has changed like before the transition, before the sale to Navian and afterwards, it's definitely a different culture. I think there are things that have stayed the same, but there's just like a difference between being at, you know, what was at the time kind of a rocket ship startup where you're just like holding on for dear life while the thing like takes off and like patching the holes in the boat and to now where like, I think we still operate very much with a startup mentality and run as a, as a small company, even though we are technically part of a much larger organization. But, you know, I think that the things that have stayed the same is like, we are very mission driven as a company. Again, the people from day one, I think a lot of it comes down to like who you hire and what their motivations are. So if you hire a lot of people who are down for your mission of helping people and doing the right thing in financial services and you know just mission-driven people, that creates a certain type of culture that persists and kind of keeps people motivated to keep charging towards your mission or your vision to try to make the world better or whatever you're doing. Right. So let's talk a little bit about your role. You're the chief product officer for the company. We don't get a lot of product people on the show. So I think you have a very interesting point of view to contribute. Tell us a little bit about your role. Tell us a bit about maybe some of the challenges that you encounter and what do you enjoy the most? Yeah, good question. So my role is I oversee product management, all of our design team, user research, our data analytics team, and then our lending GMs. So it's probably broader than I than many chief product officer roles. Part of that is the background that I have of running the products as a GM previously. I think one of the big challenges that I see, which is not specific just to me at this company, but consumer fintech is a difficult thing to do well, I think, because the entire, you know, not to bash on financial services, but like so much of financial services in the past has made money off of doing things that are like not in the best interest of their customers, right? Whether it's like high interest loans or fees or, you know, whatever, don't read the fine print, etc. And once you kind of take it as a given that you are going to not do that, and you are going to be creating things that are in the best interest of the consumer, like it's hard to make money a lot of times, right? And so there's a reason why so many companies are going after this one segment of consumers, which is, as you may have heard the term from SoFi in the past, but the Henry's, the high earners, it's not rich yet. 
or you know the millennials or the same group of customers who like either has money or is going to have money but that's like such a small portion of the population and now that that segment is so highly competitive because you have Fetterman and Wealthfront and SoFi and Robinhood and they're all kind of going after the same group with the and so you know the trick is figuring out how to serve kind of a broader population help people solve their problems make a difference in their lives and then make money as a business and i think that's just not easy to do i think that's a lot of what our vision at earnest ultimately help people pay for their education in less time than it takes to earn their degree so like much quicker than it is today and figuring out how we can do all of that and yet still grow the business side i think is the ultimate challenge Yeah, certainly a major point of discussion, a big issue for a lot of students graduating these days, you know, the size of their student debt. Do you think the current situation, the COVID crisis that we're living through is going to affect the way we think of students these days, especially as more schools are going digital? I think it's probably too early to tell, but certainly that is becoming a bigger area of focus, right? Like I know there was lots of, I don't know if protest is the right word, but you know, a lot of people unhappy with paying the same amount for their tuition, even though they're going to have only digital online experience. You know, what that does, whether that has a long-term lasting effect remains to be seen. I think it's hard for the schools because their cost structure doesn't go down just because the students aren't there necessarily. So it would be great if they could save themselves and pass savings on to students, but I don't know that they have that luxury. Hopefully this will put some amount of pressure. You know, one of the big problems with the ballooning student debt is just the tuition costs have gone up just so much more than inflation or anything else. And I think hopefully this at least puts a spotlight on that piece of it and encourages people to start thinking about how to reduce tuition costs, how to be smarter as a school to use funds more cost effectively. And I think there's probably ultimately an opportunity there for companies, tech companies or other companies to help schools kind of achieve that. So I think that will likely play out in some way. We'll see how, you know, I don't know that if that will be a huge mover. I guess it depends how long this goes on for and all of that. But it certainly is bringing that piece of it to the forefront and to people's attention. And speaking of which, how has the crisis affected your business? Well, there's a few things. I think on the demand side, you have obviously the federal loan with the CARES Act, federal loan payments are paused, interest is not being charged. And so, you know, the demand to refi federal loans is essentially non-existent. And in fact, we put a, a big reminder on our origination flow to tell people like, hey, like now's probably not the best time to refinance your federal loan. So think twice before you do it, which is, you know, ultimately good for those people. And then on the, we have, you know, obviously a large percentage of people that we are servicing and collecting payments from. And I think, you know, there it has been where we are fortunate that the majority of our borrowers have done well through this crisis. Even a large percentage of the people who, you know, when this first happened, went on forbearance and said, I don't want to be making payments right now. We're seeing a large portion of those borrowers start making payments again, because I think some of this was just like uncertainty and like being prudent about like, I don't know what's going to happen. I should just hold my savings. And now that we're kind of in this like weird, but more normalized world, they're comfortable making payments again. I think there is obviously this section of borrowers that are having trouble making payments. And we spend a lot of time trying to figure out the best ways to to help them. 
But honestly, that's where it comes down to how can you kind of work with them on a more individualized basis to do what's right for them? Because when you're being charged interest on a loan, it's not always a great idea to just stop making payments if you can make them. And so we want to help people make the best decisions for them in the long term and obviously not do anything in the short term that's going to cause them any financial distress or anything like that. Yeah. And I guess uh, we're recording this late July as the stimulus payments begin to taper off actually this week, we're probably going to see, you know, a, a different picture than what we've seen in the past three to four months. Are you guys watching this closely? Yeah, we definitely are. I think based on kind of our set of loans that we've done and just, you know, the refi market in general lends itself to people who are more well-off and have more chance of keeping their jobs and things like that. So I think it's something we are watching, I think, from two angles. One is our customers, right? Like we want to make sure that we're doing the best thing for them and we're keeping in contact with them and making sure that you know they're making the right decisions. And then more broadly, as we think about how we can help people with student loan debt you know, now and into the future, I think there we're paying a lot of attention to it because... You know, we've been in a world where there's been no downturn since uh, 2009. Or, and so what made sense six months ago may not make sense anymore. And where you didn't have to think about building features or products for times like this really brings it up to the forefront of, you know, where are the opportunities to improve? Where are the opportunities to help people given that like things like this still will happen and, and are happening now? And David, tell us a little bit about the road ahead for Ernest. How has the COVID situation affected your future plans? Or maybe it hasn't, right? Um, what do you think the future looks like for the company? I don't know that COVID in particular has affected our future plans, as we talked about a little bit earlier. We'll see how the landscape of student loans changes and if there are opportunities for us to help in different ways than we thought about before. But I anticipate us going deeper on education finance, kind of keeping and moving with our vision of helping people pay in less time that takes to earn their degree. Like in order to do that, you have to look at all the financial education, career related decisions that somebody makes from the time when they're a sophomore in high school until they pay off their last dollar of student loans. And that's a lot of time. That's a lot of decisions. And I think there's a lot of space for us to make improvements there. So as we got into the in-school lending space, like the private student loan space, every time you think you know something, you like peel back the onion. You're like, oh, like this is why this is a problem. And then you're like, oh my God, this is why this is a problem. And so you know, I think as we continue to go deeper in that market and look at other ways to help people on the front end and like ideally not get into as much debt as they have now, we're just finding out you know, lots of new opportunities, uh, problems slash opportunities uh, to go help people with. David, I'm sure we have quite a few listeners interested in breaking into some sort of product role. Can you share some of the lessons that you've learned in this role in the, in the past few years and maybe share some advice to these listeners? Yeah. <laughs> As you can probably tell from my background, I'm probably not the number one person you should go to for advice on how to break into product management. It was definitely a very uh, circuitous route. But I think you know one of the things that I have found that's really helped me and, and continues to help me in this role is, which seems kind of intuitive, is just understanding the whole product and how everything fits together. Because like I can't tell you like the number of times, even like very early on at Earnest, where I'd have a conversation and they would suggest we do X, Y, Z or 
build something or change a process. And like my first thought coming away from that conversation was always like, they don't know how this works. You know, like lending is like pretty complicated as a product. It seems simple, but it's not. Like there's everything you do to originate a loan. And then there's all the things you have to do to sell the loan. And I think that applies though across all products, which is like, I have seen product managers that have a tendency to focus on you know, what they're trying to improve conversion in this one piece of the flow or tension or something like that. But they don't really understand the whole picture of like, this is how the business works. This is how the product fits into the structure of the business. And because of that, they make, you know, more localized decisions that are not in the best interest of the product. And they waste time researching things that just either like not a good idea and that they would have known if they just took the time to take a step back. So I think that's a big one for me and has been just continues to be, uh, I think it's a way to differentiate because not everybody does that. And then I think, you know, obviously you could go join an APM program, associate product manager program at one of the bigger tech companies. But I think, you know, if you're anything like me, you're not very good at interviewing. And so (laughs) that might not be your best avenue. I think the opportunities that I have seen is just joining a more fast-growing startup. Like if you can grow a fast-growing startup, like they can't get enough people to kind of keep up. So there's always new opportunities. I think if you go in there and you approach it from like, what are the problems I can solve? Like you're just always going to be presented with more opportunities. And I think lastly, approaching things from the mindset of one of the differences between approaching things, I think as a PM versus somebody else, which is you're going to hear all day, we should do this, we should do that, we should build a, you know, a pl- we should be a platform business, we should sell like B2B or whatever. I think in the past, you'd be like, yeah, that's a great idea. Like, let's go do that. But I think now, every time I hear one of the things, I'm like, oh, we, yeah, we could do that. But like, should we do that? And like, that's ultimately like <laughs> any feature as a PM, you're going to get a million requests. As somebody trying to break into product management, you're going to think about, oh, we could build XYZ and blah, blah, blah. But like, ultimately, it's like everybody has limited resources. You got to think about how things fit into your you know product strategy, into your company strategy, into the mission. Like prioritization at like a macro level is really important. And I think just shifting your mindset and mind frame from like, yeah, we could do this, but should we? Uh, always asking that question, I think is super useful. So those are my few not super helpful tips to, to people trying to break into product management. Oh, excellent. I think that's pretty helpful, actually. So David, before we go, we always like to ask to all of our guests about some of their activities and hobbies outside of work. Maybe you can tell us how you spend some of your time outside of earnest. Yeah, I have... Two sons that are one and three. So if you combine that with the work from home and a pandemic, I don't really do anything else besides work and uh, take care of them. But I think when I do have some free time, I geek out on health and fitness trends, which can lead you to some really weird places. I have a chest freezer in my backyard that I fill with water and climb into it to take ice baths. And uh, I spend as much time as I can outdoors. I think actually at Warden, I started as a venture fellow doing code epoxy, kind of got into mountain climbing and carried that out throughout my life. And then lastly, when I'm done doing any exercise or mountain climbing, I like to eat really good food. So I'm always on the lookout for that. Excellent. Well, David, thank you again for joining us. It's been a pleasure. And once uh, things start getting back to normal, we definitely want to see you around campus. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Would uh, definitely miss Philadelphia. Definitely miss the restaurants in Philadelphia. And uh, thanks a lot for having me on. It was great to talk. All right. Thank you, David. 
thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.